next, so it seems. And what's beautiful about even 1 Corinthians 13, that very last verse that Derek just read, again, this verse that says, so now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. That has everything to do with, ironically enough, our passage in 1 John 5 this morning. And so I'd invite you to turn with me to 1 John 5 as we consider even the correlation here between these two passages this very morning. This morning, um, again, this construct of faith, hope, and love, this threefold construct, is right here, riddled throughout our entire passage of 1 John 5. For each of these elements of the Christian life, faith, hope, and love, which Derek was just speaking to, define who we are as God's people and how we are to live before him, you know, our lives live before the throne, as we just sang, but also other people. And so as we approach this very last passage from 1 John in our series on a household theology, as we bring this series to a close and begin to open up a new series here next week, I think it's important that we recognize that John brings his letter to a close by hearkening back to the same theme with which he started back in 1 John chapter 1. That theme of confidence. Confidence in the testimony concerning Christ Jesus. If you recall in chapter 1 of 1 John, he talks about how you know, these things that we have seen and touched, seen with our own eyes, touched with our own hands, concerning Christ who is the life, they are knowable. That's essentially his idea. And these things bring life. So here in 1 John 5 comes back to that same idea of there are things that testify to the veritability of Christ who is our Savior and our life. And so he continues to emphasize this same fact that Christ is our life. And we as the household of faith, as we've been talking about the last few weeks, are not just a forgiven people like we saw in chapter 3, not just a, a knowledgeable people, but an overcoming people, which we'll see especially here in chapter five. An overcoming people. In other words, we are, as the rest of scripture goes on to say, more than conquerors through Christ. Him who loved us and who gave himself for us. Now it's often been said, especially in leadership, that in order to lead well, in order to take somebody along with you for the journey, it's best to know the end from the beginning. It's best to know where you are going and what you have in mind as your goal before you begin to just simply lead people along with you. <laughs> well, John does the exact same thing throughout the letter of 1 John. He ends up leading in many ways through the actual narration of 1 John from chapters 1 through 5 with a very clear goal in mind. And he ends it even here in 1 John 5 with this truth, this aim of the letter this purpose for the church that was there all along, a singular goal in mind. What is that goal? Is that we would know Christ, and that we would know him to be our life. Christ, our life. And that we would arrive at this knowledge as a forgiven people, one who knows Christ, but also recognizes the victory that is in Christ over Satan, sin, and death, that we could never accomplish in ourselves, but by virtue of faith in him, we have through him. See, this knowledge of Christ who is our life leads us to a place of hope-filled optimism, come adversity, renewed 
vision and even courage to stay strong in the midst of anything that might come our way as long as we are abiding in Christ and our faith remains in him. So if you haven't already, I invite you to turn with me to 1 John 5, verse 1, as we begin to turn our attention to the reading of God's word this morning from our passage. And just as we turn our attention to the reading of God's word, for it is he who speaks to us, um, so I would invite you to listen for his fatherly loving voice right here in this text spoken over you. For this is nothing less than God's word given to you in love. Forever faithful, forever true, never to fail or to falter. And so please hear and receive and enjoy even the very word of God here in this time. First John 5, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> the word of God says this. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. And there are three that testify. The Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. But there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, <clears throat> but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him 
who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's the word of God. Thanks be to him. Uh, Let's come before him in prayer. God, we thank you that we, as your followers, live lives that are before the very throne of grace. What a powerful reminder this very morning as we were singing that song, Higher Throne, to realize that we are people who live before the very face of you, our God. Your smiling face. We thank you that in Christ we have been forgiven, we've been washed and cleansed, cleaned, made pure, but nothing of our own accord, but only by the work and merits of Christ. And so we ask, O Christ, that as your word, the message of life concerning yourself is proclaimed here this very morning, that our hearts by your very Holy Spirit would swing wide the doors of our own hearts to let the King of glory come in. Lord Jesus, we ask that we would receive this message of life with gladness, with joyfulness, knowing that you have come again to give life. And you will come at the last when all hope seems lost even for your bride. And you will make all things new. God, we thank you that you are already in the business of making all things new, that your gospel is already going out into all the earth, and that there will not be a corner of the earth, so to speak, that will be left before you come back that has not heard your name. So Jesus, we ask for this and to that end, that as you send us out on mission as a church plant, into our own communities and our livelihoods around Virginia and beyond, that you would use us, your church, to further your kingdom of grace. All in preparation for that day, that day of glory. And so we pray this in your holy and mighty name, the name of Jesus, amen. Well, church, as I was mulling over the passage of 1 John 5, excuse me, the past several days, I realize more and more just how life-giving this very word of encouragement that we've been focusing on in 1 John 5 in particular really is. It's a message of hope. It's not one of, uh, that comes from a place that, that causes us to be distraught in our own souls, but rather it tends to our souls like a pleasing balm. And so I hope that as we continue to expound upon this and, and learn from First John 5, that this very message would be a balm to your soul here this very morning. When you think back to uh, the letter itself, uh, the origination of this letter, you might recall that the church itself that John had in view, whether it be maybe the church of Ephesus or somewhere else in modern-day Turkey, one of those churches around there most likely, had wrestled with her own identity. She had lost way. She had lost her sight of God. She'd forgotten where she was going. And she had been taught the word of Christ, the gospel, and received it with gladness at one point in time. Otherwise, John would not be writing to her in such a loving tone. And yet, historically speaking, there have been many false teachers who had arisen within her own midst. People who sought to question the validity of the faith once delivered to the saints 
false teachers who masqueraded around as shepherds of God's own flock who are really biting and devouring the sheep, false shepherds of this people, using the people for their own vainglory rather than God's true glory. These people had sought to undo the good work which God by his spirit had accomplished in their church. And so John, in his heart, essentially was just breaking for them. How could he not write to them? How could he not tend to them as a loving shepherd? How could he not stay by their side and commit himself to them? And so John, along with the other apostles and overseers of the church, wrote to them, here, this letter of 1 John, compelling them to return to a sound belief in Jesus as the Christ. And yet, inasmuch as this might have been a discouraging situation for the church to find themselves in, for this church that John cared so much for even, John remained remained filled with hope, a hope for their sake, a hope that the church would simply hold fast to the one who is true, simply hold fast to their identity in Christ, and so keep themselves from idols, and that in return they would end up abiding in the faith and withstand all of the attacks of the enemy against the church. Well, thinking of this situation, historically speaking, and now even entering into the life of our church over the last month and beginning to serve here in your midst, I couldn't help but think of our own situation here at Christ's Covenant. We as a church. See, a few months ago when I was constructing this sermon series for this new season of our church's life, I couldn't help but realize that this message from 1 John even back in the late fall or early December or so, whenever it was that Derek and I were working on the sermon series, the plan for it, I couldn't help but realize that this would be so fitting for our church here in this season. For though we are paradoxically in many ways a church plant in stature and even in size, we ourselves have also already been experienced and have weathered so much, each one of you. And so like a tree that has been pruned and cultivated and trimmed back and scaled down to size and replanted in good soil, waiting for the warmth of the sun and the light rains to fall upon it, so we too, I am utterly convinced and have been, are fixated by God's own will in this new season for his glory. And by virtue of that, as his people, for our own good. He is faithful, and he is with us. See, as I've had the opportunity of getting to know each and every one of you better and better over the past several months, I have been deeply encouraged to see the fruit, the fruit of your perseverance over the past few years. I've continued to hear upon how you have waited upon God, waited to see what he would do in the midst of things that were maybe hard, and yet it's been beautiful because I've seen God's preserving hand at a distance and now even getting to know you, how God has sustained you and kept you and used every single one of you for his glory. And because of these things, I hope you know that I take utmost delight in every one of you. There's not even a day, I'm going to try not to cry here, but there's not even a day when I do not think of you all and, and pray for you as the church and even just 
dare I say, brag on you all to my closest friends and family and partners in the ministry because I've been just so enamored and smitten by what God has done here. See, over the last two years, you as the family of God here in Culpeper have continued to covenant together around the gospel of Jesus, your hope, your life. You've committed yourselves to staying true to his message, as Derek was saying, in a world that seems to be straying so far from the truth of God. You stayed true to the message of peace with God through Christ Jesus, our Savior. Life in him solely through his substitutionary death and resurrection from the grave. You've been led by truly fantastic leaders who have continued on by your side through thick and through thin, even when the future of the church maybe seemed a little bleak at times. And you've continued to hold fast all the more, not just in your heart of hearts, but even intellectually and spiritually to sound doctrine. Sound doctrine in, again, a world that is changing its fashion so, so rapidly. You have continued to fall upon the mercy of Christ for your forgiveness of sins and to be led by our friends and our allies within the Blue Ridge Presbytery, those with whom we are accountable to and who have supported us in these seasons. Even in a season like COVID, which was hard on all of us in so many ways <laughs> over the last year, seeing so much of our own lives be shut down and put away with, isolated, and even in a place of fruitlessness. And yet God, by his mercy, has continued to bear fruit in this church. And it's so obvious to me. And I want to thank you for that. See, brothers and sisters, I say these things to you from my own heart because, again, you have proved the very message of 1 John 5 to be true, even in how the Lord has worked through you. And what is that message again? <laughs> 1 John 5, the message itself is simply this, that we are in Christ. Our identity is in Christ. And as such, we overcome. And so my desire for you this very morning, as we continue to dive into the actual passage itself, is that you would even see yourself here in this passage. See, though this church was written to, or this letter rather, was written to a specific church in mind, we in many ways were also and are also the recipients of this very letter. For the very God who ordained and who authored and who inspired this letter for a church in a particular situation wrote this in such a way that it is entirely relevant and applicable to us and our lives here at Christ's covenant. By faith in Christ, we will overcome. And I hope if you take anything from this that you would take this to heart, that by faith in Christ, you, dear friends, will overcome. So here again, this truth from 1 John 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. See, these words are just as true of us as it was to the church there in the first century. For these words themselves speak primarily concerning our identity in Christ. That we who have come to know Jesus, the only begotten Son, true God, become true man as well, full of grace and truth, who have received him as he is, the anointed one of God, chosen from before the world's foundation to be slain for our sake. We, these people he died for, we are born of God. 
and not for any good work that we have mustered up within our own selves. Not as a result of even the smallest fraction of our own ability, but solely by faith given, given to us to receive the gospel of Christ with humility. And so as those who have known the mysterious love of God and the Father himself who gave us his Son, we are so innately endowed as stewards of this same love, as recipients of his love, to therefore love as Christ loved us, but also to obey, to obey God's commandments. A call to action, essentially, is right here before us. Not just to revel in this amazing love for what it is, and we ought to do that, but again, it's a call to action, a call to obedience, a call to faithfulness, a call to be on mission for Christ's glory. For at the very heart of love, and even our love for God, love for Christ and his glory, is in essence a selfless devotion to the glory and beautification of him. See, if we love something or someone properly, we seek to beautify it and exalt it in a way that is appropriate to it. Granted, God himself doesn't need to be exalted any higher than what he is. He already is exalted. We can't add anything to God. And yet the beauty of us recognizing this is that we are saying, we want to bring, like, so shine the light upon God in how we live that he is magnified before the whole watching world. And so may this be our, our aim, that we would honor him who saved us by living in such a way that is in accordance with his good pleasure, so loving what he loves and tending to what he desires of us. And yet we see here in 1 John a kind of dissonance here in our text, a kind of dissonance before our eyes because we see both the sheer magnificence of God in all of his glory and the life that he gives juxtaposed with the world that it refers to, this world that is so lacking, a world which seeks to even overcome the people of God and seems to be so contrary to us. And by that, of course, I mean the world of sin, the world. Now, as we've seen throughout this uh, letter, such has been the state of being ever since the very fall of man. And John even alludes to it as such. He references this again in 1 John 2 that, you know, in Adam and Eve's fall, our first parents, as they fell from that place of um, kind fellowship and the promise of life with God based upon perfect obedience, as they fell into sin and lusted after the allure of that sin and so partook in transgressing God's command, they fell. And ever since the world has been separated in many ways, we've been in discord with God. John also continued on in 1 John explaining even how Cain and Abel were related in terms of those who were believers and those who were unbelievers. He alludes to the fact that it was uh, a result of Cain's own sin, even against God's righteous line through Abel, the sin of murder in particular, or hatred against God's people, that we still see these effects to this very day. The world hating believers in Christ. We still see the effects of this murderous, hate-filled heart against God and his people. And so John illustrated that it was from the very entrance of sin into this world, Adam and Eve, even Cain and beyond, that 
the entrance of sin into this world leads to nothing less than death. For the way of folly and unrighteousness lead men only astray into disarrayed living. But here is the contrast from 1 John 5. The end of a life that is rooted in Christ is not any of those things. Rather, a life that is rooted in Christ by faith is one marked by victory over death and is marked by life and wisdom and peace. This is why John states in verse 4 that everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. We're no longer of the world. For everyone who is found in Christ, the head of salvation, is by virtue of his overcoming death and his bodily resurrection, so destined for such glory in him at the last. And just as we are destined for eternal life, so are we partakers of that life in the here and the now, though we are still gazing through a mirror dimly, if you will. And so God has given us assurances of our faith, assurances that keep on motivating us in the midst of the adversity, in the midst of seeing and recognizing the darkness of the world for what it is. These assurances that we, him, that we ourselves will be preserved by his own hand and will be kept safely until glory. We might be thinking, what are these assurances? Well, they're actually right here in 1 John 5. And by name, these assurances are threefold. The water, the blood, and the spirit. And these three, John says, are in agreement. That Jesus is indeed the Christ who has secured for us eternal life. And these things, the water, blood, and the spirit, testify to such a fact. Now, admittedly, upon an initial reading, these three things might seem a little obscure to us. Like, what do the water and the blood and the spirit all have in common? How do they all relate, and what does it even mean? That's a really good question. (laughs) Many people, even as they have sought to understand this, have been left confused by this. But if I had to venture upon the idea of this, when we consider the whole of Scripture and how those words, the water and the spirit and the blood, are all used, they all have so many commonalities, both in the Old and the New Testaments. See, the whole of Scripture which John drew from, in this, we see the concept of cleansing running throughout the Old and the New Testaments. Cleansing. And especially in light of the ceremonial law of God given in the Old Testament, we see that both the water and the blood, these two elements, water and blood, were both used in the sacrificial system to convey to God's people the need for cleansing, the cleansing power from sin. Within each of these uh, sacrifices that are described and even were prescribed to the people of Israel as the visible people of God under the covenant of grace in the Old Testament prior to Christ's coming, either water or blood was used in terms of the sacrifices themselves. In many ways, the sprinkled blood in those sacrifices, if you look back on the Old Testament, it testified to the people of Israel that the result of their sin, their wrong and rebellious actions against God, was nothing less than the cost of life. Nothing but blood could atone or cover the very sins that were committed. Their sins demanded the shedding of blood. And we also see water, though, there in the Old Testament, 
water also in conjunction with the idea of having a cleansed or a purified uh, conscience, recognizing that nothing but God himself can cleanse us from even the knowledge and the remembrance of our past sins. And so both the blood and the water spoke to the people of Israel there under the Old Testament that nothing but God by his grace could save them. Water and the blood both testifying to such a fact. However, though the sprinkled blood of slaughtered beasts and the washing of water poured out over them could never actually atone for the sins of any, we ourselves here in this new covenant have indeed a savior from whose side also poured water and blood and whose death atoned for many. I'm reminded of Isaiah 53 verses four through six, which say the following concerning these things. Surely he, meaning Christ, the very man of sorrows, he has borne our griefs and carried away our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, friends, the whole of the entire ceremonial law, all of the water and the blood that even John is thinking of and thought of as he was writing this, it points us to Jesus our great high priest who is himself the one who administered these very ordinances in the Old Testament, but also the one who took them upon himself, who is himself the one who paid the price for our sins, the one whose death is what we put on him. And so the water and the blood of the new covenant testify this. For just as the Spirit of Christ testified in advance through the very Word of God that these ordinances of the Old Testament were given to the people of God to remind them of their need for a Savior, so the Spirit of Christ testifies to him this very day. We see both in the ordinances or the sacraments, if you will, of the New Testament, which Christ has given us uh, for the nourishment of our faith, both water and blood still being things that we think of when we read the Scriptures water and blood still being used as signs and seals. Baptism through the use of water poured out and sprinkled over us testifies along with the spirit that we belong to Jesus and are so united to him and his church, a blood-bought covenant community by his grace. And that second sacrament of communion through the bread and the wine in tandem with the spirit of Christ still also testify to us that we have fellowship with God by nothing inherent to ourselves, but rather by faith in Christ, we have that righteousness before the Father. Justification. See, this is the testimony of our assurance before God, which he has given us himself. These things, the water and the blood and the Holy Spirit alike, all testify to the life we have in Christ. And so as it is secured for us in heaven, our position before God is secured for us in the here and the now here on earth. The gospel of Jesus signified by the water and the blood 
in the sacraments that we partake of as the church and testify by the Spirit, all three of these elements together agree that we who have faith in Christ have eternal life in him. As 1 John 5.12 says, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so in light of God's preserving of both us and our faith in the here and now, this brings us to the last half of our passage, verses 13 through 21. And while there was largely a focus in many ways upon the idea of um, us being preserved by God in the first half of this passage, here in this section we're going to see in large part this emphasis upon a call to persevere in the midst of the storm. Here again the words of 1 John 5, verses 13 through 15. John says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Friends, in this letter of 1 John, there is this call to view the Christian life in all of its simplicity. And it is here that we find a call in many ways to a straightforward understanding of God as, and I love this truth, our heavenly father. And we as his children. For John essentially has made the argument up until this point throughout the entire book of 1 John that we have been united to Christ by faith and that as such we are born of God. We have been given new life. New life by his finished work of redemption. Not only accomplished upon the cross, but applied to us by the Holy Spirit. And so as such, we stand in relation to the triune God, no longer as those without an identity, but rather as those who are called children of the living God. Children who are heard by his kind and always ready to listen heart. What an identity we have in him. Church, don't we all long to be heard by a father who loves us that much? One who not only tends to us by lending us his listening ear, but is eager and ready to receive every single one of our needs and our requests, as it says here. And even so meet them as long as they are in accordance with his will. We as believers in Christ have such a father in heaven. One who is always at work, divinely orchestrating all events and circumstances here in this life for his own glory and our ultimate good as his people. <clears throat> but how often do we believe this? You know, how often do we actually live in light of our sonship or daughtership before God? Not just this mere intellectual assent of the mind to understand this truth, but an actual soul-filled trust in this truth that we are called sons and daughters of God, that we are his beloved children. See, if you are one who is autonomous in nature like myself, um, it might be hard because this truth of God as our father who is eager and ready to hear us 
is something that I am just continuously having to learn and relearn and relearn over the course of my life. Because I operate myself in such a way that I am tempted to succeed in life by my own efforts, my own vain attempts at making much of whatever it is that I am setting out to do on my own strength, as opposed to tapping into the very loving kindness of God. It's so easy for me to rest upon my own mental capacity or social skills or the like, as opposed to being reminded, and God loves to remind me of this very often, admittedly so, that I am in creaturely need of him to provide. For it's so easy for myself, and I'm sure many of us here, to be, just dare I say, planners over prayers and doers, as opposed to those who simply be and rest in that. <clears throat> now, I imagine that of all people in this world, there are two groups of people in particular that probably recognize their neediness of God as their father in particular more than anybody else. And those two groups of people are very different, uh, both children and those who are marginalized by society, those who are homeless or without much, in other words. See, when you think about it this way, the former children come from this place of innocency before God. And in a very healthy and loving home, rooted in such a, a wonderful lifestyle, they should never have to worry about their basic needs being met. Food, shelter, clothing, even that relational capital that keeps things going. For all of these things and so much more are provided to little children as they are loved by their parents. And so to them, the idea of God's fatherly love is probably something that is only so natural to them. Of course God is father, of course God loves us. But think about those who are marginalized by society. Again, those who maybe come from a broken family structure. Those who have come from a place in which their earthly goods have been taken away from them for whatever reason, whether it was their own doing or others. How much more for those people who are without so much does the love of God, when it is known through Christ, abound toward them? How much more does the love of God become known to them and cherished and experienced where once there was so much lack? See, when you think of these two people groups, children in many ways come from this place of innocency, just this innocent relationship before God. And yet those who have gone through trials and tribulations of all various kinds and in many ways, this includes many of us, I'm sure, we have come from a place of experience. And so how much more do we need to lean upon God as our Father, no matter where we've come from, a place of innocency or experience? Indeed, we all, as believers in Christ, were once without hope in this world. We all were once separated from Christ prior to faith, alienated from the commonwealth of God's people, and strangers to the precious covenant of promise without God. And yet in kindness, God has gathered us to himself for this purpose, to know him and to love him. To know him as our father and to know the heart of our father. This is why John so boldly says that we can and in fact actually should bring any and all of our requests before God our Father, 
who hears us. Because our Heavenly Father will accomplish his will in our lives. For as we call upon him daily, as we behold his power demonstrated through his kind providence all around us, we will come all the more to know him as he is, all-powerful, all-knowing, and everywhere present. And yet in light of the transcendence and the magnificence of God, when we know these truths, our sonship or daughtership before God, and that right standing before him through Christ, we will also see his imminency to us, his closeness, how much he cares for us. And it's in understanding his transcendence, but also his imminence, his otherness, and yet his closeness to us, that the gospel of Christ will appear all the more magnificent to us. For what could bridge the gap but Christ alone? So what should we bring before God our Father in prayer? In many ways, this is a point of application for us. Essentially, anything that comes from a spirit of thanksgiving before God in the name of Jesus, by the help of the Spirit and in accordance with his will, is acceptable before God. Anything, in other words, that we as believers are mindful of and take before our God as such from a place of understanding and reverence, from a place of humility and fervency, of faith and love and perseverance in the faith vocalized to him in our own language even, is heard by him and known by him. Even when we think of our brothers and sisters in the faith who have sinned against us and who have wronged us, who have done us injustice, and our minds go there. We are called by God to bring these things, every single one of them, to God in prayer and pray for them. We are instructed here in 1 John 5.16 in particular to take these things to God, to lift up our souls to the very one who hears us. However, there's a curious statement here in verses 16 and 17. That, and you probably have caught it already, if not earlier, that in verses 16 and 17, there is a kind of sin that John alludes to, a kind of sin that we are told not to pray for. In fact, he even says and commands us, do not pray for these things. A sin that, as he says, leads to death. Well, what in the world does John mean by that? What kind of sin would lead to death? That's the million-dollar question right there. Now we know, and as John even says, there is certainly this truth that all unrighteousness is sin, so all sin ultimately does lead to death. In other words, the payment for sin is death. But there is a sin that leads to death that is not worth even praying for. That's a curious statement for somebody to make. Now while the phrasing of this statement is a bit confusing to us at first observation, when you first read over that, you're probably thinking, well wait, what do I not pray for then? If I'm supposed to bring all this before God... I believe what John is saying here is not out of alignment with the confidence that we are to pray and bring all these requests in accordance with God's will. So in other words, everything that is in accordance with God's will, we should bring before him, but anything that is not in accordance with his will, we should not bring before him. So what would be out of his will then? Well, essentially praying for things that run contrary to the will of God are things that we should not pray for such as praying for, as funny as it may sound, for injustice to continue. That would be inappropriate. <laughs> also praying for there to be forgiveness or pardon of sin, 
by anything else aside from Christ, spiritually speaking, we should not be praying for. Furthermore, we should also not pray for those who have died, you know, for, that, for those who have already gone on, who face the judgment. These are things that we should not pray for as judgment is already set to be made. And so in essence, God is saying through John here that we should be praying for all things except those things that lead to death. Those things that are both corporal, corporal or bodily, if you will, or spiritual that concern things that are outside of the will of God. And so both of these sins, both praying for, let's say, injustice or for spiritual injustice, are not in keeping with God's will. Rather, in the positive, we should ask for God to show mercy to those who are caught in sin. Mercy by showing them their very need of Christ and nothing less, and the pardon of sin that is found in his name alone. See, this is why John supplements this idea immediately with verse 18. He says this, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. And verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power or literally the appointment, if you will, of the evil one. And additionally with verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So essentially when we come to God in prayer, asking all things that are in accordance with his will and with that full assurance of faith in Christ, we will come to know him all the more as he is and so seek to love him accordingly. Well, friends, as we conclude, my prayer for us this very morning is that we would ourselves become all the more a people of prayer, a people who are devoted to praying and bringing all lawful, meaning biblical things, unto the very courts of heaven. For God our Father hears us. And as Christ is already reigning from his throne at the very right hand of God, the Father Almighty, may we who are united to Christ by faith enter his courts with thanksgiving and with hearts that are filled with nothing less than praise. For his ear is always attentive to us, brothers and sisters. With that in mind, let's come before him in prayer. Dear Jesus, we thank you that we have you as our intercessor. You are the one who never ceases to pray for us, who never ceases to plead over us day and night, who is always pleading before the very throne of grace, bringing even by your spirit the requests before the Father that we ourselves do not even know how to pray for, things that are within our own souls that we do not even know how to express you pray for over us. So Lord, we thank you that we have a father who is so ready and eager to listen to us. One who hears us and one who is working accordingly. And so knowing that love and his work, may we become all the more a people who love in response and who obey your commandments, O oh God. And so we ask these things in Christ's mighty name. Amen.